Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this week's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. Over the last few weeks, we've been working on a presentation-based approach to abdominal pain. Remember, abdominal pain is probably the single most high-yield area of study that you can do for your emergency medicine clerkship. Abdominal pain is the most common chief complaint, and abdominal pain is associated with critical diagnoses that make up at least probably, you know, or at least could potentially make up a quarter of your M4 CDEM curriculum. So it's super high yield if you want to crush your slow. If you want to be a good doctor, you just got to know this stuff. And this week, we're going to start powering through this ginormous list of critical diagnoses. And so I'm going to say up front, this is going to, a few disclaimers, this is going to miss some pediatric stuff. Clerkship directors of emergency medicine, they didn't put things like necrotizing enterocolitis, malrotation with volvulus, interception. that's not on this list. And I think they're probably intending that you're learning about that during your pediatrics clerkship. There are really so specifically, there are 11 critical diagnoses listed in the CDEM core curriculum, and then I'm going to expand on that and add a few big ones that I think you should know that kind of fit in well during these episodes for the sake of being thorough because they're still maybe not like life-threatening, but they're still important and very common. But the list, and we're going to go through this in excruciating detail pretty much all summer, um, all clerkship season, we're going to be going through abdominal pain, critical diagnoses. So, you know, it's like the summer of abdominal angst, right? So you don't have to memorize this right now. Abdominal aortic aneurysm, acute coronary syndromes, diabetic ketoacidosis, really any acidosis, ectopic pregnancy, testicular and ovarian torsion, pelvic inflammatory disease, perforated viscous, mesenteric ischemia small bowel obstruction, all of the biliary stuff, and appendicitis. And then for the sake of being thorough, I'm probably going to add in pancreatitis, diverticulitis, prostatitis, your urinary tract infections like uh, pyelonephritis and volvulus. And again, it's going to take many, many weeks to go through this. It's going to be it's going to be a summer of abdominal stuff, okay? But seriously, by the end, I think you're going to have a really good and thorough understanding of this chief complaint. And this is the highest yield chief complaint out there. And so I think it's going to be worth our time. So first step, let's take down this long list and we're going to break it down into four major categories. And then we'll slowly start going through them. And so those categories and the category we're going to start with this week, the intra-abdominal quadrant-based diagnoses. And so I'm going to call all of those the quadrantes, appendicitis, diverticulitis, cholecystitis, and all the biliary stuff, and pancreatitis. And after that, we're going to do the intra-abdominal bowel diagnoses. So not the quadrant ones, but the bowel-based ones. And so we're going to call those the bowelies. Those are mesenteric ischemia, small bowel obstruction, perforated viscous, and volvulus. After that, we're moving out of the abdomen and we're going to be discussing extra-abdominal genitourinary life threats. So that's ectopic pregnancy, that's testicular and ovarian torsion, that's PID, uh, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, and prostatitis, and the urinary tract infection. So we're going to call those the pelvises. And then to round out our summer of abdominal angst, the non-GU extra-abdominal life threats, abdominal aortic aneurysm, 
acute coronary syndrome, and acidosis. Specifically, DKA is the main one in your clerkship curriculum, but any acidosis does this. Aneurysm, acute coronary syndrome, and acidosis, the AAAs. And I want to preface all of this by saying that this list does not obviously include all possible causes of abdominal pain, but it is a list that includes, it's a solid list of life-threatening diagnoses. It's a solid list of important diagnoses that you're going to see commonly. Um, and uh, you just need to know these and have these in the back of your mind when you have patients with abdominal pain. But one more thing I want to say, never, and I said this before too, never fall into the trap that just because you rule out these sort of emergency medicine type diagnoses in your patients, that they still don't have a legitimate cause of severe abdominal pain. Ulcers, inflammatory bowel disease, endometriosis, constipation, ovarian cysts. It's always good practice, in my opinion, to validate your patient's concerns, even when a thorough emergency medicine workup comes back negative, because let's just make the assumption that your test came back correct and that you don't have a false negative hiding in there somewhere, which is incredibly common. But we also just don't test and can't test for everything in the emergency department. So with that said, um, there's a big list of things that we can kind of rule out in emergency medicine, but never think that like, oh, we kind of check for everything. We know everything about the abdomen. Like that's like BS. Okay. So this week though, we're starting to work our way through the intra-abdominal quadrant-based diagnoses, the classic quadrant diagnoses, the quadranties, appendicitis, right lower quadrant, right? Diverticulitis, classically thought of as in the left lower quadrant. Um, probably next week will be biliary with all of that sort of biliary liver stuff in the right upper quadrant. And then we'll just say the pancreas is in the, the left upper quadrant, a little arbitrary, but things that fall into classic quadrants. And with each of these categories, we're going to cover four things. Uh, the four things that I'm going to at least touch on, even if it's briefly, is going to be the history that you hear from patients and the types of historical things consistent with these diagnoses, uh, what you're going to find on your exam, and then uh, the testing plan and the treatment plan. Hello, Dr. Olson. I have an 18-year-old female with a past medical history of ovarian cysts and endometriosis, no surgical history, who presents with abdominal pain. She describes it as a continuous, gradually worsening, right lower quadrant abdominal pain that has been getting bad over the last 12-ish hours. She has had decreased appetite, subjective fevers, but she hasn't had any urinary symptoms or vaginal bleeding or vaginal discharge. She's mildly tachycardic in triage, and she still is tachycardic during my exam, but she's afebrile here and otherwise has normal vitals. On exam, she has focal tenderness over the right lower quadrant and a little bit of the right flank, but she has a negative psoas sign, a negative obturator sign, and a negative Rovzing sign. There's no CVA tenderness. It might just be her endometriosis getting worse, but we need to rule out the life threats, including ectopic pregnancy, appendicitis, and probably pyelonephritis too. For my testing plan, I want to get a urinalysis, a pregnancy, a CBC, a BMP, and a CT scan of her abdomen with IV contrast. And for my treatment plan, I would like to start by getting her four milligrams of IV Zofran, four milligrams of IV morphine, because she looks pretty uncomfortable. And let's keep her NPO for now. All right, let's get going. Appendicitis, the first of our quadranties. History. So your classic history for appendicitis, pay attention. 
PAs, NPs, all of you, I need you to pay attention and listen to what I'm about to say. All appendicitis starts as vague, nonspecific symptoms, or as you've been classically taught, like a nonspecific generalized abdominal pain, right? It's, it's vague, nonspecific symptoms. All appendicitis starts out as vague, nonspecific symptoms. And so you've learned this, visceral, non-localized abdominal pain that eventually, and this is a very key thing with appendicitis, will migrate and become focal in that right lower quadrant. So yes, you know this, but I want you to, again, all appendicitis starts out as vague, nonspecific symptoms. Do not underestimate this nasty, just nasty visceral pain phase. It's like usually in the first 12 hours or so of the disease, and it is extremely nonspecific, and it is notoriously going to burn you eventually during your career. It looks exactly, appendicitis, early appendicitis looks exactly like gastritis or gastroenteritis. They're a little nausea-y, maybe you got some cramping, some low-grade low grade fevers. I mean, it looks exactly, 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 exactly like the stomach flu at first. Early appendicitis looks like the stomach flu. The stomach flu, appendicitis. We don't like ever diagnose gastroenteritis officially in the emergency department because like the moment you do, they will fatefully bounce back and they were in an early appendicitis. And over time, what happens, and this is part of your history too, usually after about 12 hours or so, that inflamed appendix, it turns into this hot fire poker and it starts poking and rubbing on something. And so most commonly, it's the peritoneum, that, that inflamed appendix is going to start irritating the peritoneum, and your most common location of that is the classic McBurney's point. So that pain, that visceral, nonspecific, just kind of bad stomach flu phase eventually migrates and goes to McBurney's point. But keep in mind that the appendix isn't right on McBurney's point for everyone. The appendix can lay in lots of different kind of orientations. So if that pain, if that appendix is over to like their side, let's say you can get pain that kind of migrates again, only it might be over more towards the flank. Okay. Maybe it mimics a kidney stone or something. If it sits near the bladder, it's going to start causing dysuria and frequency. And you're going to get like this false positive urinalysis. Maybe there's not like bacteria on it, but you're going to see like lots of white cells and leukocyte esterase. And the temptation is going to be this person's having a little urinary, uh, you know, some dysuria and they have a bunch of whites and leukocyte esterase on their urinalysis. You have to be very careful here that you're not missing appendicitis. Now, by all means, if it's a urinary tract infection, it's a urinary tract infection. You shouldn't, you know, as we'll get to later, be CTing them for appendicitis. But it's it's just a very tricky, it can be a very tricky diagnosis. You know, this is a very common uh, lawsuit. And so you have to be careful with appendicitis. If it sits over near the rectum, the patient may have some diarrhea. They'll have something called, you know, tenesmus. You've learned about this. The visceral stage of appendicitis is an absolute nightmare to diagnose in the real world. And usually once that wraps up, it'll migrate to McBurney's point, but it could technically irritate lots of things in the area, okay? Again, I just want you to pay attention here. Appendicitis is a progressive Typically, it's almost like the classic number is like 12-ish hours. People will come in. They'll always try to tough it out all day, and then they'll come in at night is sort of the, the classic story, although certainly that's not always true. It's 12 hours of stomach flu, and it's like, this is a really bad stomach flu. And all of a sudden, it's like, I'm having pain. 
Fevers are possible with this. Classically, you're going to get decreased appetite with this. If the pain is really bad and all of a sudden it just stops, that classically would be concerning for something like a, a ruptured appendix. But the key point here is you have to be very careful during that classic, quote, visceral stage of appendicitis because it looks like gastroenteritis. It looks just kind of like a bad GI bug. And then you're like, man, they're having a lot of pain. You know, you just have to be very careful. Okay. So let's keep moving though. Exam. Advanced appendicitis patients. So once that nonspecific visceral stage is over, classically, they're going to be lying still on the bed. That's what we're taught. The patient is trying to keep that hot fire poker appendix from jiggling against the McBurney's point or whatever it happens to be laying against, the bladder, the rectum, the flank. And so you obviously, especially at this stage, you're checking over McBurney's point for tenderness. Um, really local pain in the right lower quadrant, even if it's maybe not like exactly McBurney's point, but focal pain that you can like push on in the right lower quadrant that's worse than the other quadrants is very concerning for appendicitis. But don't forget uh, with appendicitis, a few more things before we move on. There's some classic physical exam findings that you want to ideally put in here as well. If you're thinking, you know, let's say you're, you're on your, you're doing your history and your exam and you're like, I think they might have appendicitis possibly. And you go and you push in their right lower quadrant and you're like, they are tender there. There's some things that if you're in the room doing the exam and you're already thinking appendicitis that you want to, uh, physical exam maneuvers that you want to do. So you can put them in your presentation and really examine that complaint. Well, that, that step of the presentation, right? So don't forget about psoas sign where you basically extend out their right hip and you're trying to extend it like backwards almost behind them and you're trying to see if that causes them pain so with psoas sign what you usually do is you'll lay them on their left side and then you'll just kind of take their right uh, their right hip and you'll just kind of start bending that backwards that's psoas sign obturator sign is you have them lay on your back you take their right leg you bend it up you flex that hip to like 90 degrees so the last one is you extend it out this one you you flex it up to 90 degrees and you start rotating that's obturator sign and then the rovsing sign where you push on the left lower quadrant and they feel pain in the right lower quadrant right so if you're way, you know, thinking about this, put this into your presentation. It'll make you look smart. Testing plan. There are, let's hit on three important tests with appendicitis. The urinalysis, abnormal or normal in appendicitis. Is the urinalysis abnormal or normal in appendicitis? You're like, urinalysis, what? It's like, what are you talking about? I'm making a point here. It can be either. If you have suspicion for appendicitis based off your history and exam, the urinalysis, and the point I want to make here, an abnormal urinalysis is something you need to force yourself to at least temporarily ignore. Appendicitis frequently causes an abnormal urinalysis, classically white blood cells, leukocyte esterase, not always, but it's not uncommon either. And so if you have a high Suspicion for appendicitis based off your history and exam, you can get an abnormal urinalysis and you shouldn't just say, oh, well, it's a UTI. That's a, that's a mistake. Your next test that I want to talk about is the white blood cell count. Abnormal or normal in appendicitis? Either. The white blood cell count can be both normal or abnormal in appendicitis. If you have suspicion for appendicitis based off your history or exam, 
the white blood cell count, and the point I want to make here, a normal white blood cell count is also something that you need to ignore. It's a classic pitfall. Patients with appendicitis frequently have a normal white blood cell count. This one is kind of the reverse temptation of a urinalysis. An abnormal urinalysis, it gets drawn out in triage or whatever, and all of a sudden it's making you think it's not appendicitis because they have this abnormal urinalysis. You start to think maybe it's more of a UTI. The white blood cell count is the opposite. A normal white blood cell count that you guys are always getting because you're always putting this in your presentations. Everyone gets a CBC, right? It's making you think this isn't appendicitis. They have a normal white blood cell count. These are both huge and well-studied diagnostic errors. Can a patient with a normal white count and an abnormal urinalysis have appendicitis? Absolutely, yes. There's a saying that I've heard floated around, some twist on this. The white blood cell count is the last refuge of the intellectually destitute or something like that. Not that it's useless. I'm not saying that. Certainly the white blood cell count is helpful, but it's just not like super helpful and it doesn't rule anything out. And what that leaves is imaging. Um, so we've talked about the white blood cell count. We've talked about the urinalysis. If you think that the patient has appendicitis, you're going to need to get some sort of imaging. And so adults are going to get a CT scan. A CT scan is 96% sensitive for appendicitis. So it's not 100%, but it's 96% sensitive. So that's pretty good. Pediatrics uh, get an ultrasound that we don't go straight to a CT scan in pediatric appendicitis. And that is an ultrasound is 86% sensitive was the, the number I was seeing in the Tentinelli's manual. But it's also operator dependent. And then the last one that you might get asked about is if it's a pregnant woman, remember, and this is just a side note, but remember pregnant women in their appendix, it gets kind of, the uterus pushes it up. It's not over McBurney's point anymore. It pushes up almost into the right upper quadrant sometimes. And so if you're worried about appendicitis in them and you need to get imaging, you need to get an MRI. But some sort of imaging is your diagnostic testing plan for appendicitis, okay? And now last for appendicitis, the treatment plan. In addition to pain and nausea medicine, such as four milligrams of IV morphine, four milligrams of Zofran, uh, a lot of what we're doing in the emergency department, we're giving those preoperative antibiotics. Appendicitis uh, is still very much an operative diagnosis. Um, so you can ask surgery, because obviously appendicitis, usually they're going to go to surgery. You can call them and ask them what they want, but usually you're giving them something like uh, Pipercillin Tazobactam, which is called Zosin. You can also pre-treat with something like called Unison, so that's ampicillin, sulbactam, but you're giving some sort of antibiotic to decrease the risk of post-operative wound infection, and if, if that appendix is perforated, it also will decrease the risk of post-operative abscess formation, and then the treatment plan is, is surgery. You're, you're calling a surgeon. And um, one more thing before we move on to our other diagnosis this week, I want to clarify one thing here. You don't need to image everybody. This is something I struggle with a lot as a resident and as a first year attending, I've had to be more judicious and kind of move away from it and start to think about this carefully and focus a lot more on my exam and, and that type of thing. Um, you, you should not image everyone with gastroenteritis, diarrhea, urinary symptoms, or any of those vague symptoms because just because appendicitis is tricky and it can cause all of these sort of sneaky presentations 
It doesn't mean you have to, every time you see someone with gastroenteritis, that you have to get a CT scan. But what you do is you have to consider it and you have to tell the patient, yo, I think you got a stomach bug. This is like one of the worst stomach bugs I've ever seen. It's always the worst, right? And then I'm going to get, I'm going to send you home with some nausea medicine. I just want to let you know, early appendicitis can look like this too. So if it gets worse, especially over the next several hours, just come right back. I'll probably still be here actually. No worries. Come right back. But then we're going to need to do like the full CT scan and the workup for appendicitis. And usually if you say it right, patients will be like, okay, sounds good. And frequently they, they don't come back and they get better. And every once in a while, one of them will come back in a few hours. You're like, oh, hey, and it's appendicitis, right? I do this all the time. The trap is not under testing for appendicitis when your pretest suspicion is low. The trap is not considering appendicitis and early appendicitis when your pretest suspicion is low, if that makes sense. But for example, am I doing any testing on somebody with a completely benign abdomen exam and clastic gastritis or gastroenteritis? None. I don't get a single test on them, but I talk with them a lot. Okay. All right. So. Whoop, whoop. Let's go to the next diagnosis for this week. Let's flip on over to the nasty twin brother of appendicitis, diverticulitis. Classically, diverticulitis is left lower quadrant pain. Although you can get diverticulitis on the, the right. I've never actually seen that, but apparently it can happen. Uh, very similar history to appendicitis. What you're going to find, in addition to kind of the vague symptoms and then possibly localizing and migration of symptoms, is that these patients tend to get a lot of poop-related complaints. And so the classic scenario is the old lady or guy, I guess, who comes in and they're just, they think they're just constipated. And they're like not, you know, they're an old farmer or something. They've never even been to the hospital before, but they're like, I'm just really constipated. It's starting to hurt. That is kind of what diverticulitis looks like a lot in like the real world. And so they make him cl complain of some blood, um, maybe some fevers, some nausea, vague symptoms, kind of starting to turn into more focal symptoms, that type of thing. Uh, very similar to appendicitis, just with a lot of stool related complaints. Let's not get bogged down in the history of this. Cause again, a lot of it's the same as appendicitis, same with exam, nothing fancy with the exam here. There's just varying degrees of focal tenderness, uh, typically in the left lower quadrant. And now let's talk testing. So CT scan, that's, that's really your test. I've never gotten an ultrasound to diagnose diverticulitis. I'm sure eventually maybe it'll be possible. For your clerkship, if you think that the patient might have diverticulitis, you're going to put CT scan in your testing plan. CT scan has 97% sensitivity um, and similar really good specificities for diverticulitis. And so during your clerkship, during your testing plan, if you're worried about diverticulitis, CT scan. And then I want to focus down your attention to the very last thing we're going to cover this week. And that is the treatment plan for diverticulitis. This is, this is something that I missed when I was in medical school, and this is going to be really helpful for you. So appendicitis is still, though, you know, there's some papers and stuff coming out of antibiotics only. Appendicitis is still primarily a surgical disease. Diverticulitis is typically not. Now, if it's severe diverticulitis, horrible pain, really high white count, that type of thing. If the patient has the peritoneal signs on their abdominal exam, if they have really bad comorbidities or immunosuppressions, or especially if they have complications of diverticulitis on the CT scan, such as abscess, perforations, 
fistulas, when that diverticulitis causes complications. So that's still an admission that's still typically going to be a surgical consult. And you're going to do the similar sort of antibiotics with these cases as with appendicitis. So piperacillin, tazobactam, um, ampicillin, sulbactam, which is unison, IV, and you admit. Severe diverticulitis. But pay attention here. The real difference with diverticulitis compared to appendicitis is that with diverticulitis, well-appearing immunocompetent patients with well-controlled symptoms can go home with oral antibiotics. We rarely do that with appendicitis, but you can give amoxicillin clavulanate. Uh, did, did I do that right? Augmentin, right? I'm trying to do like the generic names and I always use the brand names. Um, that's kind of like the oral equivalent of unison. You can do Bactrim. You can do ciprofloxacin and Flagyl. There's lots of different oral antibiotic options that you don't even have to memorize. Just get like the Emra antibiotic guide or something. But just know the key point here is that mild diverticulitis does not necessarily need to get admitted to the hospital. We frequently send that home. All right. So... We've covered a lot this week. We're in our summer of abdominal angst. We're in our quadranties right now, the intra-abdominal, classically quadrant-based diagnoses. We've covered appendicitis as a critical diagnosis and diverticulitis. Let's wrap for this week. We're just going to continue our summer of abdominal angst next week, and we're just going to power through this. We're going to cover so much abdomen, you're going to be like, you're going to get abdominal pain from how much abdominal pain we're going to be talking about. So until next week, where we talk about more of the same, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.